Thank you, Gabrielle. The title of this sermon is Things to Agree on, Things to Watch Out for. So I, I've spoken with a number of you this week about last week's sermon, and one of you, I liked your advice the most. I liked your response the most. Happens to be the guy who was playing bass up here today. And what he said to me was, look, these are my words, my paraphrase, but I'm so bombarded with all that's going on in culture right now. I'm so tired of it all. Can we just go on to something else? Next Sunday. Got to hang in there because there were other people who said, can you cover this and can you circle back and talk about that because you didn't and maybe you should. And so I'm doing the didn't, maybe you should today. And it's things to, things to agree on and things we as a church need to watch out for. Now, you ready? Let's jump right in. Things to agree on. At this unique time and place in our history, here are some things for us to hopefully agree on, or some of us are going to disagree on some of these things, but here's what we want to establish. Where we disagree on these things, we can agree to disagree and keep ourselves on gospel mission. All right? Here's the first one. Certainly you agree with me. Racism in all of its forms, and you know that phrase, the devil is in the details, there's where the devil is. What are its forms and do we agree? Racism in all of its forms, wherever it's a real form of real racism, it is morally wrong. Agree? You all agree on that, don't you? Totally agree on that. You're all 100,000% behind that. In all of its forms, wherever we can identify something that is biblically defined and biblically identified as a form of racism, it's evil. It's morally wrong. It has no place whatsoever in Christians' hearts or in Christian churches. Zero. Nada. None. Why? Well, there are many passages of Scripture we could turn to. Let's turn to a few. Genesis. Genesis chapter 1. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So we learn from that passage that every living soul on the planet is a soul created in the image and likeness of God. There are no first-class souls or people there are no second-class souls or people. There's no color to the image of God. It's just the image of God. And every one of us, no matter how much or how little, melanin bears that image. We saw a week or two ago, we all come from a common ancestor. We all almost share entirely the same DNA. And here we see we come from the same origin, bearing the same image. So knowing that, every person I ever meet, whatever size, shape, color, ethnicity, nationality, whatever, they're made in the image of God, just like I'm made in the image of God, we're the same stuff. We're the same thing. And there's no room for racism or discrimination that would pretend that they're somehow not the same stuff as me. Here's another verse, James chapter 2, verse 1. James writes, my brothers... Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. My brothers, 
show no partiality. Now, what is partiality? In their day, the problem he was addressing was there were wealthy people and there were poor people. And wealthy people came in in fine clothing and poor people came in in meager attire and the the wealthy people were shown partiality. They were given special preferential treatment. Oh, we have a really good seat for you right here. And then they would say to the poor man, "Uh, you sit there under my footstool, King James Version. And James is responding to that, but in responding to that partiality, he's giving us a principle that has broader applications, indeed can be applied to any form of partiality ever found on the planet. All human partiality is ruled out by that verse. Sorry, I'm pointing at where I'm seeing it. Did you all know I'm looking at it now, except some verses are too big and it gets real teeny and that's when you'll see me look down. All right, explain that. No room for partiality. The principle logically, compellingly applies to partiality due to racism. The words of James strictly forbid that in a Christian's heart and in the church of Jesus Christ. Man, I think you all agree that. I think you all believe. I'm not preaching it because I think some of you are messed up on this. I'm preaching it best as I can. I think you all agree. Another verse from, from the Bible on this, James chapter 2 and verse 4, a couple of verses later. He says, so if you treat people with partiality, rich, poor, whatever color, male or female, if you treat people with partiality, he says, now I've got teeny, have you not then made distinctions So we're not to have partiality, which leads us to make distinctions. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And now he's going to take a peek into your heart. What would lead you to do that? You have become judges with evil thoughts. Any racial thoughts are evil thoughts. That means they come from hell. They are not of God, they are of the evil one, who is a liar. So James says, this is happening in the church in his day. It wasn't racial, they were all Jewish, they shared an ethnicity, but it was poor and rich. But that serves for us as a broad principle that covers any kind of distinction, any kind of partiality. It has no place whatsoever among us. Amen. Amen. Let's go on. Another verse, 1 John 3.15. I like the way this one applies. John says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. James is doing with hatred the same thing our Savior did with adultery. He's showing us how every command has that outward component, but every command also has a heart component. It's just like when Jesus said, if you're looking at a woman to lust for her, guess what's going on in your heart? You're committing adultery with her already in your heart. Now, John is applying that same kind of, let's move the command into the heart process to hatred 
and love. If you hate somebody, you're a murderer in your heart. If it could go all the way that it wants to go, you would actually kill somebody. And James is telling us there's no place for that in the church of Jesus Christ. So we all agree. Let me go back to my little definition uh, or my little statement. Racism in all of its forms is morally, ethnically, biblically, sorry, ethically, biblically wrong. Ethnically and ethically. Take a drink after that one. We agree on that. However, we might not always agree. In fact, I'm sure that we in this room do not all agree about how prevalent racism is, about what constitutes a specific example of racism, about how to recognize racism in the world, how to define racism. That is, now there are, these are my definitions trying to figure out how to define what I'm seeing in the world. There's classic racism. That is, you have animus in your heart towards someone who does not look like you. For my entire life, that's what racism meant. There are additional definitions right now in time. So there is also what is called structural or systemic racism. It's in the structures and systems that disadvantage people of color disproportionately. And there's also what I'm going to call psychological racism. I just finished the book titled White Fragility. Anybody in this room read that book? Are you kidding me? I'm the only one? It is, yeah, we read it, we both read it <laughs> and talked about it as we did. It is a smash hit in the United States. Number one bestseller on the bestseller lists for a while. Been on the bestseller list for, I don't know, two years now. And it's coming to where you work. Unless you work at Cornerstone Church. I'm looking at Cindy's. Not coming to where do you work. Well, we might read it. That'd be good. But it's coming to your universities near you. It's coming to boardrooms near you. It's coming to classes you'll be required to take at work. We're all going to read this book together and discuss it. And if you don't have a good attitude about it, hmm, it might not go too good. I'm calling that one psychological racism. I didn't just describe it very well for you. I don't have time. I'm not going to go there. We might not agree on whether there is, let's say, systemic or structural, I pretty much think you have to agree there is some, but to what extent is that the problem? To what extent does that oppress people? We might have differing opinions on that. We might have differing opinions on white fragility. Let me tell you, honestly, I am trying to be fair. Here's what the book is about. You won't have to read it now, since only two of us have read it anyway. Here's what the book is about. If you're white, you are a racist. You will always be a racist. You can't help being a racist. You don't even know how racist you are. And a very important mission in your life is to spend a lot of time looking inside to find out what a real racist is in there and try and connect, correct it, but you won't be able to correct it because you're racist. Smash hit in the United States. We won't all agree on our responses to that book, right? Some of us will read it and go, I dig this. And I'm not looking at you because I think you'll dig it. You haven't read it, all right? Just happen to look at you. And some of us are going to read that book and go, no, no, I'm not down with that. What do we do when we can't agree? Here's what we do. 
we agree on the core doctrines of the Christian faith. When we cannot agree on other things, we agree to disagree. Amen? Amen. I love that little verse Paul writes to the Philippians where he says there's two ladies sitting there. One's named Yodia and the other one's named Syntyche. Actually, one of them's sitting there and the other one's sitting there because they don't like each other. They're not getting along. And he puts right in Scripture that's read right in their service, I urge Yodia, you're not Yodia, and I urge Syntyche, you're not Syntyche, uh, to agree. Imagine they get that in their hands and they go, but we don't agree. How are we supposed to agree? We've tried and tried, and we can't come to terms on this. Well, then here's what you have to do. You have to agree to disagree. We have to do a lot of agreeing to disagree to get along in the body of Christ. We have to agree we're just going to love one another anyway. We're going to rejoice in our unity that we have in Christ and stay on mission, arms locked together. So racism is wrong. Similarly, let me give you another thing I think we'll agree on. Oh, I didn't hit the start button on my timer. (laughs) Oppression, thank you. Oppression in all of its forms. We might not agree on what is a actual form of oppression, but wherever there is a real manifestation of oppression, it is morally wrong. Wherever somebody is holding somebody down, And some people today would add, wherever there's a system that's holding somebody down. And then we could argue which systems and to what extent are they the problem, et cetera, et cetera. It's all swirling right now. But certainly we would all agree that oppression is morally wrong because we have Zechariah 7.10 and a whole host of other verses. But look at Zechariah. Did we lose Zechariah, Rob? No, you got it. You're the man. Do not oppress. And then we get a list of possible oppressees. Do not oppress the widow. Do not oppress the fatherless. Do not oppress the sojourner. They're just in your land for a little while till they get back to their land. Do not oppress the poor. And let none of you devise evil. That would be oppressing them. In oppressing, you are devising evil. Don't let any of you devise evil against another in your heart. So every everyone I know, I think, will agree that here's a form of oppression we can all agree is wrong. When you have it in your heart to shove somebody down so you can go up, that's oppression. Now, does the Bible speak to systemic oppression and what it would be exactly and how we would identify forms? Not that I'm aware of, but you're welcome to enlighten me. Um, But I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I'm just saying we might disagree on that. But we all agree we are not to oppress people who are disadvantaged and can't push back the fatherless, the widow, a sojourner, the poor. We can't pick easy targets, step on their necks on our way up. That is oppression. So we all agree on that, but as with racism, we might not all agree on what constitutes oppression, how to measure oppression, where oppression shows up, what it really is. What is oppression to one of us might not be oppression to another one of us. To what extent is 
A believer expected to fight systems of oppression if there are some, and I think there are personally. It's hard not to. But to what extent are they the problem? That's another issue. So there's a, it's all swirling. And swirling and spilling into the body of Christ with all different opinions and all different positions and all different perspectives. And there's Facebook arguments in our church. I'm not on Facebook, so I don't know, but I'm told. I'm so glad I'm not on Facebook. Thank you, Jesus, that I'm not on Facebook. Amen? It reminds me of James. I'm off topic now. It reminds me of James in chapter 3 where he talks about the tongue. And he talks about what an evil it is, what a fire it is, and it sets on fire the course of hell. Just write that over Facebook. Hell book. And I ain't on it. Join me over on Twitter. It's just bad. So what do we do when we don't agree about oppression? Well, we can debate it. We can argue it. We can try to convince each other. That's all fine. Just so we keep it in love and smile and embrace each other when we go and say, I love you, brother. That's all right. But at, some, at many, many points in the, in the discussion, we're just going to have to agree to disagree. That's your view. Bless you. This is my view. Lord Jesus knows I'm right and you're wrong. But No, we don't say that one. We don't say that one. No, 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 no. That's cheeky. In the same way that racism in all its forms is wrong and oppression in all its forms is morally wrong, so, thirdly, injustice in all of its forms is morally wrong. Right? We're going to see in the Bible in a moment how the Bible, how God in the Bible speaks out against injustice wherever we find something that really is injustice and where there are disagreements on what's injustice. But wherever there is real injustice, and God knows it's injustice. It is morally wrong. Now, what is injustice? Just means for things to be right. Right according to what? Right according to God, right according to his law. So I'm treating a person with justice when I'm treating them right according to the standards of God. Here's how you treat people. We just had three weeks of the one another's of the New Testament. Plug every one of those one another's in right here. They are justice. This is how you justly treat people. Do this to one another. Don't do that to one another. And lots of other things in the Bible speak to us about justice. Here's a great verse. There are many. I had a hard time picking. There were so many juicy ones. And there's one or two you see over and over and over. So I just thought, I'll get a more obscure one. And here we are. Isaiah 1.17. Learn to do good. You got to love this. Seek justice. Seek to be right with God and his law and seek to be right with people according to God's law and seek to treat them right as God would have you treat them right. You're seeking justice. And then he throws in oppression. We just talked about that from another verse. Correct oppression. Where you see it, correct it. To what extent Am I, as an individual believer, expected to correct it at a systemic level, or am I mainly expected to correct it in my life and how I oppress people? There is an interesting topic for a debate. Y'all have fun on that one sometime, but if you don't agree, you've got to say, okay, but we're going to have to agree to disagree. We're on mission together. We've got a higher calling than to figure that out. If we can figure that out, that's good. We want to learn to do good. We want to seek justice. 
Uh, we want to bring justice, it goes on, to the fatherless. Again, it's disadvantaged people who are defenseless, who suffer injustice, right? I mean, like, try to be unjust to Arnold Schwarzenegger. Just pick an example. He's bigger than you, and he's got way more money than you, and he's going to win. Nobody picks on Arnold. Well, they might, but you get the point. They pick on what appears to them to be a weaker target. But we are to bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause, that poor widow over there, and they're not taking proper care of her. This was the problem in Acts chapter 6, and there was a murmuring between the Greek or the Hellenistic Jewish people. They lived from outside Jerusalem and had been Grecianized. Made, they had been Hellenized in some of their behaviors, so they were a little bit different culturally. And those who were the strict Jewish people in Jerusalem, and there was a complaint. The Hellenistic people said, how come our widows aren't getting fed? How come your people, widows, are getting fed, but our peoples aren't getting fed? There's an injustice. There's some oppression going on. And they addressed it. That was, uh, that was injustice, not pleading the widow's cause, and the church had to get together and fix it. I love this phrase in the Bible. I'm not putting it up for you, but I love it, and I can't pass up the opportunity. I use it a lot when I think about my thinking. Am I thinking justly? The Bible says we're to weigh everything with a just balance and an even scale. There's fairness in the way I judge you. It's the same as the way I would judge me. In the way I would judge issues if you're African-American, the same I would judge issues if you're a white Caucasian. There's got to be a just balance and an even scale. That's justice, treating people right. So we all agree, you can't be a Christian and not be like, yeah, justice. You know, it's, it's in your Bible, man. We all agree on that, I trust. But we may disagree. We do disagree on what exactly justice will look like and how involved am I supposed to be in a certain effort toward justice and et cetera, et cetera. There are going to be many disagreements on those things. What do we do? We can have fun debates. We can talk about it. We can have, um, we can have link battles. You know what that is? You know what a link battle is? It's like you send them 875 links, go see this. And they send you back 900 links. Oh, yeah? Go see my links. We can have link wars, but it's all got to be done in a spirit of love and patience and unity in our hearts because we know we have a greater mission than this, which is to preach the gospel and to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. What if we could end, some of you might not like this, hear what I'm saying. What if we could end all oppression and all injustice and all racism on the planet, but we haven't led anyone to Christ, and now on this nice planet they all die and die in their sins and go before God in judgment and land in hell. We have not done the most needed thing for them. So let's keep our priorities straight. The most needed thing is the mission that Jesus Christ gave us, which is to lead people to saving faith in Christ. Under that mission, we're also trying to figure out justice and race and oppression, and we're trying, and we're trying to get them right. And right now is a hard time to get them right because, man, it's swirling in all kinds of directions, and it's dumping into the church. I contacted various pastor buddies of mine from around here and not around here yesterday and asked them, 
how's it going in your church in light of what's going on out there? And everyone said, man, it's really challenging right now. It's dark out here and I can't, yeah, that's Pastor Jay, isn't it? Pastor Jay, hello, brother. How are you, how are you, bro? You're surprising me here today. Look, I'm going to leave the notes right here. He's pastor at uh, Freedom, number two. We call it number two. They don't know where Windsor Mill is. It's number two. I'm going to leave the notes here and you finish it. No, you're on vacation, huh? All right, bro. Pastor Jay's preaching here for us in August. Hmm? Don't get me in trouble. So we agree there's... There's a need for combating racism and oppression and injustice. We might not agree on what qualifies as a form of one or the other of those. We might not agree on how to recognize them, how to define them, who's guilty of them, who's required to do what about them. Here's two people in the body of Christ, deeply committed to the Bible's teaching on justice, and one believes the best course to take for justice would be reparations. And the other one believes, that's a horrible idea. What are they supposed to do? Agree to disagree and get on mission? By the way, don't know if you know this. I did the math this week. I figured if what is being proposed for reparations happened, do you know who will get what? Do you know who will get how much? You have to be, to, to be qualified for it, you have to be able to prove that for the past 10 years, on some kind of a federal form, you noted that you were African American, and you would have to be able to prove a lineage to at least from a mother or father's side to someone who is an African American. One of them has to be able to prove they're African American, or you're not eligible. So assuming whatever small number that is is now eligible, how much, how, take a guess, how much do you think they'll get a year? Uh, not a year, a one-time check. Guess how much? $16,000. My heart just sank. You mean all this for $16,000? That'll pay off a few bills and it's gone. I'd like us to see, I'd like to see us do, I don't want to send checks. I want to see things that'll help. I'd be willing to spend a ton of money if we can really help disadvantaged people, but I mean things that really help. I'd be happy to spend a ton of money and a ton of, but now I'm getting into my personal opinions, but I won't get in trouble with these for you will like them. (laughs) Man must choose his opinions that he lets out. But believers aren't going to agree on what is justice. Here's one that is a little bit cheeky. I might get in trouble on this one, but I'm going to say it. I'm going to put it out there and you got to agree with it. How about justice for police officers? who are required to use means that can put them in situations that get caught on camera that get them labeled as bad. When all they're trying to do maybe, in some cases, is get home to the wife and kids and do their job. And how about allowing them to be, wouldn't this be justice? They are innocent, Pastor Steve, they're innocent till proven Guilty. Hmm. Isn't that an important part of part an important part of our whole criminal justice system? Isn't that a bed? I want to be treated that way. There are countries where you're not treated that way. I don't even want to be a visitor in those countries. They'll lock you up and you are guilty. 
Thank God it isn't that way here. But justice, justice is justice for everybody. It's not partial. It's not justice for citizens, but no justice for police. No, we got to protect them with justice too. How do we figure all that out? It gets very difficult, and there are differences of opinions. To what extent are there systems that oppress? What kinds of justice? I did a little research because uh, I wanted to know what kinds of justice are we looking at when we talk about the current social justice thing? So there is research justice. That's how we do research has to change. There's gender justice. There's age justice. I didn't look into it. I wonder what that means. Maybe I'm eligible for some age justice. I got to check that one out. I might get on that one. There's sexual orientation justice, and I know you, you who follow the Bible aren't going to go for that one, right? Um, but there's more. Are you paying attention to the to news? I'm sure you are. I wonder how many of you noticed this past week that Oxford University, founded in 1096, Oxford University came out last week and said, we are going to uh, mandate, we are going to pursue, we are going to decolonize, is their term, we're going to decolonize math. Did you see that? It's stunning. Now I'm letting my, I'm, I'm trying to be neutral. It's interesting. We're, what that means is math is a tool of oppression used by white European males to oppress and to hold people down, we've got to decolonize it, and other kinds of maths are just gonna, are gonna be just as valid. This is what Oxford University, like I'm not talking about some podunk college in Westminster, Maryland, where I'm from. You know, I'm not making things up. This is Oxford. Um, the reason they're doing that is because of students who now have unbelievable power like they've never had before because by virtue of the World Wide Web and a little phone held in your hand, you can bring a university president to your feet. And they are doing it, not just at Oxford, but at a university near you. Um, you want to hear about some more kinds of oppression that we might not agree on. Some of you might think, cool, Oxford's getting rid of the STEM sciences, the, the STEM. You know, that's uh, science, technology, engineering, and math. The movement is, and what's going on in Oxford is, down with science, technology, engineering, and math. They are white man's tools for oppression. And I'm, not, I'm trying to be neutral here. Some of you might agree with this. Some of you might not. But it's obvious that the clever men at Oxford agree with it because they're going for it. It's happening on their campus. We're getting rid of the STEM sciences or we're altering them because they, I'm using their terminology, they encode white supremacy. They only represent one way of knowing, one way of knowing things about the world. Uh, they said that uh, white man math is objective. There are other types of math. Um, in Seattle, you might imagine I'd refer to Seattle. You want me to cut? In Seattle, there is a new math curriculum being rolled out this, this fall, this year. 
And instead of studying like math, it's going to be, have you noticed how math oppresses people? How can we change math so it does, et cetera, et cetera. It goes on and on and on and on. Language has to change because language creates oppression. So there's this going on, and obviously you can tell I'm not real fond of it. Of course I'm not. I'm 65. Right? You get that? There's some generational stuff going on here. I'm 65. I'm not going to be fond of that. So I can let that slip out. I don't think that will alarm you or surprise you. But, but honest followers of Jesus Christ might see these things differently. Might not slice it and dice it the same. So we can have friendly debate. It's intramural among brothers and sisters in Christ. But when the debate's over, we got to be, all right, I love you, man. Let's do this again next week. Okay, cool. It can't be like, well, I'm not talking to you anymore. I don't want to be around you. You're for math. Not in the body of Christ, brothers and sisters. All right, here's another thing I think we'll agree on. Moving on. Moving on. Excessive and unwarranted application of police force is morally wrong. Now, I'm counting one, two, three, four police officers I can see in the room right now. And I believe they would all agree with that. Where there is genuinely excessive and unwarranted application of police force, that's morally wrong. But, you know... Here's the rub. Can we agree on whether that example is an excessive use of police force? Will we all see eye to eye on things? Can we all get ourselves together? No, we probably can't. I struggled to find a Bible verse to present you. I need a Bible verse on every point, or else it's just me talking. I did find a verse. I think it fits. I think it really fits. I think it can guide us. Luke three fourteen. here it is. This is John the Baptist out in the wilderness pointing people to the, the lamb and the soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? I mean, we're hearing you. What, what do you want us to do? What has to change in our lives? And he said to them, do not extort money, because apparently they were. And here's how they were doing it. Do not extort money from anyone by threats. Give us money or I'll... Or by false accusations, give us money or we'll accuse you of that and you're going to be in trouble. That, I think, qualifies as excessive and unwarranted application of police force. Not in a physical way, but in a a way that's just as bad, just an alternate way. It's a bad way. Threats qualify as excessive. False accusations qualify as excessive. As excessive. We agree that there are police officers who don't always get it right. We're, we agree that there are, you can find a police officer somewhere in Maryland today, probably, who has a wrong attitude. I don't know what the stats on that are. No one's done a study on that. I'm just guessing. What we, what we might not all agree about is what constitutes a just example of unwarranted police force. How often does it occur? How do we identify it? How do we recognize it? Whether or not it's racially motivated in a given circumstance. We humans can't even agree about whether, and we Christians can't even agree, about whether police should be allowed to use any force. So there's one we can debate. 
and followers of Jesus Christ are going to land in different places. But you know what? Sorry to say this, we have a bigger mission. We have a greater cause. And we just can't go getting into fights with each other on that stuff and we lose all our energy to go get on the mission. We just can't spend our whole time trying to solve what are, sorry, lesser problems and not solve the bigger problem, which is people are dying without Christ and going to hell. Now let's solve all the problems if we can, but we only have so much energy so much bandwidth per person. So we might not agree. What do we do? We have to agree to disagree, and we stay on mission. The worst problem on the planet is souls dying without Christ. Let's especially be on that mission. So that was things we agree on and some things we might disagree on. Now on to two dangers facing the church. Hang in there with me, y'all. You doing okay? Two dangers facing the church. I believe that in this unique time, due to what's going, out, going on out there, there are at least these two, there are probably more, there are at least these two dangers uniquely facing the church right now. Here's the first one. Put it up for you. Nope, I'm sorry, that's not it. It's evangelical Christians. That's it, thank you. Evangelical Christians and Christianity itself are in danger of being canceled. You know what it means to be canceled? You know about cancel culture? So if we don't like what you're saying, it used to be you'd have to hire thugs and they would go brutalize you and you'd stop saying it. You don't need thugs anymore. All you need is one of these and a whole bunch of friends and you can cancel that person. You don't even have to be brave. You can be a coward and sit in your mother's basement and get a movement going. I mean it. It's literally true. You know, you had to be brave to be a thug before. You don't have to be brave to cancel people nowadays. And when you cancel them, it started off with um, boycotting somebody. And I know Christians have boycotted companies. I've never quite understood that, but that's another topic. And you can use social media to get everyone else to boycott them, and you can hurt them. Worse, you can attack them on social media You can write to their boss, a lot of this happens, write to their boss and accuse Greg of being a racist. And you get thousands of people to write to Greg's boss and accuse Greg of being a racist. And Greg loses Greg's job. You don't think this is happening? A lot of careers are being ruined. Especially for professors, people in the talking class, careers are being ruined by this new form of bullying. Cancel culture wields a newfound form of power. It's really powerful and relatively easy for them to wield. Shut up or we'll cancel you. There's no longer freedom of speech. That's been one of our bedrock beliefs that makes this nation better than some others, at least in that way. You have freedom of speech. I think that's a very important and biblical value that we maintain. So other people are free to talk. They're not worried we're going to bludgeon them. But now you don't need a stick. All you need is one of these, and you can bludgeon them right out of existence. You're canceled. You're a tenured university professor. You're canceled, and you lose your position. And this is happening in our days, and you lose your job Well, an interesting thing just happened in that light. Any of you heard of Steven Pinker? 
follow Steven Pinker, Harvard, PhD. I uh, read a big book by him last year. Its title was uh, Enlightenment Now. Fabulous book, didn't agree with everything in it, but man, the guy is amazing. And he's very left, very far left of center. Um, so he's been like a, a hero because he's so brilliant and so well-spoken. He's been a hero to far-left people. Last week, a group of 600 signers of a document tried to cancel Steven Pinker because of some things he had said in various tweets. They're doxing him. Let's go back through all his tweets and find something we can use and get, and they're gone. And here's what happened. All the people over there who were around Pinker, Pinker's our on our side. He's one of our champions. We love Pinker. They all of a sudden, all of them went, oh, you mean this can get us too? We can be canceled? Yeah. This thing that's been created is omnivorous. It will eat anybody. Now, here's where I'm going with that. If they're going to cancel a Steven Pinker, what will they do to a Christian? What will they do to the church of Jesus Christ? We have a Bible that we love and hold to. We believe it. We cherish it. We read it. We memorize it. We preach from it. We revere it. And our Bible has patriarchs who were slave owners. And our Bible has New Testament churches, like the church in Rome is believed to have been 50% slave and 50% free. And, and you're not going to like this, but it's just, we got to face the truth. Never once does our Bible come out and condemn that. It doesn't. Like, in our day, we could wish it did, right? They know that. They know that. There are regulations for how masters should treat their slaves. There are regulations for how slaves should respond to their masters. There's the book of Philemon. Oh, what a lovely book. Written to a slave owner and graciously forces him, basically, to let that poor man go and come back to Paul. But there's no prohibition. There's no condemnation. They know that. We are plums ripe for picking. There's women's rights. We have a Bible that forbids abortion. At least that's how I see it. It just forbids abortion. That's a life in the womb. You don't go killing it. They don't like that about us. We got a Bible that says, whether you agree with me or not, this is how I'm reading that Bible, no female pastors. And no female preachers. Well, that ain't going to sit too well. We got a Bible that says, wives, be subject to your husbands. We got a Bible that says, husbands are head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. And we could talk about what that means, but I don't have time. We have a book that condemns anything outside of human sexuality, meaning one male and one female united in holy matrimony for life. That's the only form. We have a Bible that is not LGBTQ, although evangelicals are beginning to waver on some of those letters. They are, and there are battles within evangelicalism about that wavering. Now, if I'm into the angry power rush of canceling people and have maybe run out of victims, guess who I'm going to look at? The Church of Jesus Christ. 
Christians who have meaty, juicy, well-paying jobs high up in corporations, wouldn't it be fun to just cancel them and they lose their job because they believe that Bible? I haven't walked over once, Marcy. I'm about to, in case you fell asleep because I'm not moving. Here we go, all right? This might be our saving grace. I don't know. I haven't heard anybody say this. A lot of this is just me thinking here, and who am I? This might be our saving grace, so I... I checked it out. About 79% of African Americans in America identify as Christian. The larger number of that 79% of African Americans who identify as Christians are women. So they're going to have a hard time. They're going to look pretty bad if they're going to start dosing African American women. That might be our salvation. I don't know. Let's pray we can dodge the bullet. Here's the second thing that's under attack, and I'm not doing too bad here. It is the authority, thank you, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture is, in my opinion, under covert attack. I'm not the only one. I heard, I, I first got this idea from Vody Bakum. How many of you heard Vody? He's like in the John MacArthur circles, love Votie Bauckham, great preacher, love his style, love his firmness, love his, anyway, forget that. Um, The authority and sufficiency of Scripture may be under a covert attack. What do I mean by the authority and sufficiency? Here's the most important verse in the Bible used in establishing that, 2 Timothy 3.16. It reads, all Scripture, Genesis to Revelation in our English Bibles, is breathed out, exhaled out by God. God went, and out popped the Bible. And God doesn't have bad breath. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for your teaching. You want to know what to believe? You go to the Bible. For reproof, you got to push back at something? You go to the Bible. For correction, there's an error, you want to fix it? You go to the Bible. And for training in righteousness, that's being right with God and right with people. That's justice. If you want justice training, you go to your Bible And look at the next verse, verse 17. And it's given for this purpose, that the man of God, that's technical terminology for a pastor, so that pastors may be complete, equipped for every good work. What makes a pastor able to do his job? The Bible. What tells a pastor how to do justice? The Bible. What tells a pastor how to recognize oppression? The Bible. What tells a pastor how to recognize racial things? The Bible. But here's what's happening in our day. There are two ways the Bible and its equipping us for every good work are being covertly challenged. Here's number one. The applications of Scripture. Applications of Scripture are given scriptural authority. This is a problem in a whole lot of realms of life, not just current issues, but when you take applications of a passage and make them equal to God's word, but they're just your applications. Let me give an example of what I mean. Back in the 80s in Southern California in Grace Community Church where John MacArthur is still pastor, he's 81, he's still preaching there all the time, sometimes twice on Sundays. Still solid all those years, never disappointed us. Never fell into something that was a scandal. Good man. So what am I talking about? Um, so they had, they had a, uh, 
a ministry to help parents raise godly children. It was called Growing Children God's Way. It was led by a pastor whose last name was Ezzo. He was Gary Ezzo. And when you had gone through the training and you had worked on it with your kids for a while, they would actually say, your kids are Ezzoized. And we can recognize an Ezzoized kid because they do these things. Now, here was one of many, 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 many legalistic, in my opinion, things that they taught you that were their applications of Scripture. Scripture says, in so many words, the husband-wife relationship is the prior one. It comes before that of parent and children. All right, well enough. I think you can establish that by principle in Scripture. Here comes the application. Here comes the ezoized application. Therefore, here's what husbands need to do. When you come home from work, you do not pay attention to your kids. You pay attention to your wife, and you and your wife get a half hour alone on the sofa every day, and the kids come later. (laughs) Which might not be a bad idea, right? But is that... This is growing kids, God's way. I think there might be some other ways that it work just fine too, like she's sick of the kids by now. Please take the kids for a half hour, right? Amen. Yeah. So when we take a principle in God's word and then make our applications of it and make them equal in authority to God's word, we are legalists. There's a lot of legalism creeping up right now. Here's what I mean. The Bible says we're to be against oppression. We all agree on that. Here's where the devil gets into our details. One of us says, and here's what that means. And another one says, no, here's what that means. Here's what that means. Those are all applications. They are not equal in authority and weight to the word of God. If someone does not agree with your application, that does not make them evil. It doesn't mean they don't believe oppression is wrong. They just don't agree that your example of what to do about it is right. We've got to understand this in the body of Christ, and we're not understanding it real well all the time, and I'm not claiming I always get it right either. The Bible calls for justice, as we saw, and you say, here's what that means. You, as a Christian, should be doing this, and you should be part of that. Well, that's one application. It's a legalistic application. Same with racism wrong. Racism is wrong. We agree. So white fragility will help you out. That's one possible application. So oppression is wrong, racism's wrong, injustice is wrong, but there are many ways that different Christians might work out how do we fix that wrong. Here's a second problem, here's a second challenge facing us about God's word. Christians are covertly, meaning not openly, they're not trying to do this, And virtually, which means almost or nearly, Christians are covertly and virtually canonizing new books, many of which are written by non-Christian authors. These books are becoming a lens through which we must interpret Scripture. We're really being given a new hermeneutic. The word hermeneutic means a method of understanding the Bible, a method of interpreting the Bible. It used to be you'd go to the Bible, and the Bible would rule over all other books. Now, it seems as if from, from some quarters we're being told, you won't really understand the Bible till you read this. And those books are our new hermeneutic. And this book alone will not equip the man of God. No, you need to read, and we get a list of five, or we get 800 links. Or I shouldn't have said 800 because somebody mentioned 800 links to me this week. I don't even remember who. I'm sorry. I didn't mean that. 
we are in danger of covertly, virtually canonizing new books, books on racism, books on oppression, books on injustice. So I say, well, I studied scripture on those. Here are my conclusions, A, B, C. And you say, ah, 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 no, no. There's a new group of books you have to read if you're going to understand scripture right. It's a new canon that's over the canon. You know what the word canon means, canon of scripture? The canonical books established like as by a rule. So there's a new canon, a new rule, a new yardstick that's required reading for understanding the canon. And much of it, most of it is not even written by believers. Unbelievers are telling us in their books how to make applications of biblical concepts. Just be careful. Maybe they're right. Just be, be, be careful. I want to close with a quote from John Frame, who is my favorite living theologian. He's 81 years old as well, like John MacArthur. And he wrote, not many years ago, to a distressing extent, to a distressing extent, new theological movements follow fashionable secular trends. We need to watch out for that. And he goes on. For example, he says, there is a trend in evangelical theology, and there is. I checked it out some this week. There is a trend in evangelical theology to say that Scripture blesses homosexual relationships, thus following the secular movement toward homosexual rights. This is coming into the church. And then he concludes his little section saying, we must ask, who or what are we worshiping? The God of Scripture? or the fashionable trends of secular culture. Now, I'm not trying to say if you and I have differed on anything that I think you are worshiping the the fashionable trends of secular culture. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the church of Jesus Christ needs to watch out. We are being given new authorities. You must read this book or you won't understand what it means when it talks about justice in the Bible. And, And we're being canceled, doxxed, um, silenced, if we disagree with an application of something that's in Scripture, and we have things to agree on and things to watch out for. All right. Did anybody time it? How long has this sermon been? Thanks, Gabrielle. How long has this been? Did you time it? 50 minutes. 50? That's not bad. I was listening to John MacArthur this week. He's talking with Phil Johnson, who works for him. Basically, Phil wrote, writes all of John's books, takes sermons and turns them into books. So they were having a conversation, and they were remembering what John's longest sermons were at Grace Community Church, and he, twice he hit an hour and a half. i got to do that someday. I want to be in the hour and a half club. Didn't make it today. Listen, if I said anything today wrong, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to. I'm trying really hard to get it right. I'm trying really hard to be kind of neutral today. I wasn't as neutral last week, but I was in a passage that I think spoke. But anyway, forget last week. Trying to be neutral. If I didn't get it right, come talk to me. We'll be okay. All right? I love you. You need to love me. You do. We're in the body of Christ. And we can agree to disagree and keep ourselves on mission to lead people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. All right? 
Stan, the whole time I've been here, I've been seeing Pastor Jay right behind you, and I'm thinking, is there some way we should force him to be involved in this sermon, in this service today? You got any good ideas? Pastor Jay, right there. Oh, no, but how about, how about you just have him? Oh, I know what. Would you? You want to sing something for us? This man can sing. His brother's blessed with a voice. He's got pipes. What's the last song? You know that song, don't you? Christ is enough for me. You don't know that song? What kind of church are you pastoring? I can sing it. Down, brother, down. All right, tell you what. We're going to work it out so that when you preach here in August, you're going to sing too. Deal? Stan, come on up here, man. I'm, I'm out of the way. It's your turn. Oh, I didn't even pray, did I? Father, thank you for this, this time together around your word, and we pray that you would protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace in our church. We pray that you would keep us spending our time and turning our hearts toward the mission to reach lost people, to bring in, to build them up in the most holy faith. Pray that you would give us, that you'd make us wise as serpents and harmless as doves. And in the wise as serpents part, help us to keep what's in the world that does not belong in the church out of the church of Jesus Christ. Now as we uh, come to worship you again, fill us with your Holy Spirit and draw us near to yourself. In Jesus' name, amen.